0: Hi, welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Carly Pope, an actor, writer, and producer you might know from TV series like Popular, 24, Suits, and Arrow, or movies like Young People Fucking, Textuality, and This Last Lonely Place. She's currently starring in Neil Blomkamp's Demonic, playing a woman who uses experimental technology to venture into the mind of her comatose mother with disastrous results. It's in theaters and available on demand right now. Carly picked Boogie Nights, the movie that put Paul Thomas Anderson on the map in 1997. An eccentric, electrifying look at the glory days of the porn industry in Southern California, it stars Mark Wahlberg as a young performer of limited range with natural talents that make him an instant star in his chosen field. I know. Anderson surrounds Wahlberg with an absolutely stunning roster of rising indie talent and also Burt Reynolds in the role that earned the actor his only Oscar nomination. It's The Goodfellas of Porn, and I mean that in the best possible way. This is Someone Else's Movie.
1: I was trying to think about a film that came up at a certain time in my life that felt like a transition from one thing to the other, and... -hmm. and And Boogie Nights, for me, I I was in my last year of high school when it came out. And I had just started acting professionally. And I felt like that was the first film that I really engaged with or connected with on like a more adult level. Like Mm -hmm. I, I saw the film and it sort of blew me away on on a number of levels. Do I think it's a perfect film? No, but do, but I really really enjoyed it. Like I I I um was so entertained by it, I was moved by it, I was I was inspired by the performances in it, I was um titillated by the, you know, the the other references, the camera work. Like there were just there were the the soundtrack pardon me the soundtrack which oh, is it's great phenomenal and and I just I felt like it was a really good combination of tone that I think it, it I think it I think I I think I it just percolated this feeling of like that's the type of thing I would want to do that's the type of film and also I think I really love a um an ensemble like I really love ensemble films and And, and to me, again, it was just sort of, I feel like Paul Thomas Anderson just sort of like perfectly wove in the, the elements that I was looking for, especially at the time when I had sort of thought if I, if I continue to act, this is the type of thing I would want to be a part of.
0: Oh, see now that's, yeah. I totally understand that because the energy that comes off that film when you walk out of it is so buzzy and exciting, even though like the second half of the film is a fairly grim descent into misery.
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: Anderson somehow gives you this incredible high coming out of it. I, I saw it with a, with an audience at the Uptown one in Toronto, I think must've been opening night cause I missed it at TIFF. Oh my um, God. I was, I was freelancing at the time and I just couldn't get to it. And th- this is the other problem with TIFF that no one ever talks about yeah. If a movie is long and Boogie Nights is not short, yes, no. you you can't get to it. You basically like they always schedule, they always schedule the three films I most want to see against each other. Just yes. for 20 odd years, it's always been the way. And yeah. Boogie Nights, every screening was inaccessible for some reason, for one reason or another, 45-minute overlap here, 25-minute overlap there. I couldn't get to it. So I missed it. And everybody was excited about it and jumping up and down with this joy of this film. Yeah. And I caught up to it think a month later I don't think it opened in october here yeah and yeah. saw it on opening night at the uptown one with a packed house and it played like a roller coaster you could just feel the room responding up and down and going with the characters and recoiling and you know like the big shock cut that divides the film the jump from yeah
1: of yeah. Yeah, yeah murdering someone the long way down it's like yeah long, it's like it's it's that it is it is that um you know dark night of the soul. For everyone. And, and I also, I really, first of all, that's amazing. I think you were meant to see it with gen pop. Like that's the deal, right? Like you're meant to yeah. see it in like standing room only and have that energy of, of everybody experiencing it for the first time together. That's yeah. incredible. Um, that's excellent point. But it's, uh, and, and I can't remember, I know that I saw it in the theaters. I, I believe I was with my older brother and, and some of our friends um, but I can't remember exactly where I was. I just remember being so floored by the by the mix of everything, and and exactly like the, the how evocative it was to me when you change into that dark night of the soul, and there's that bell toll, you know, that's yeah. kind of like throughout, and um, and I think he, I think Paul Thomas Anderson used that same or it's similar to the beginning of hard eight. Like, I think he has that same kind of like, you know, um, church bell sort of sound. Yeah. It's like
0: a somber, mournful thing, like an attitude that creeps in.
1: It really sets the tone and you just sort of feel this impending doom. And, uh, and, but especially with boogie nights, like where it, where it hits in the film and how it interplays with everybody's um, faltering or everybody's, you know, mishap or bad luck is just, is so powerful, I found.
0: Yeah. As end of era movies go, making a film about pornography in the late seventies and early eighties. I mean, it's, it's great because we have this weight of knowledge. We know all the the speed bumps that are coming and then the actual disasters ahead of those. There's drugs, yes, but also AIDS. Like everything is coming for these people and they don't know it. And I think the the best thing about it is the graceful way he makes video the villain, that it's not any of these things that will take them out individually. It's the existential threat that the industry of professionals is facing uh, because of video replacing film and amateur pornography taking over the world. And this was 1997. He hadn't even seen where it's gone. Like he's predicting the the problem faced again in the 21st century with YouTube and social media and all of the other, um, I guess, democratization of pornography is a phrase. I I feel like I should declare this up front. Um, It's come up in a couple of episodes before where we deal with this sort of material. It's like, I cannot watch pornography. Um, as a, as a, I I see the camera angles and the lighting and I just, I click right out. I've never enjoyed it, but, but there's an appreciation for it in this film, especially with the sort of self-knowing way that he has the actors directing themselves in scenes to be just terrible. Like that amazing thing Julianne Moore does.
1: Yeah. I mean, Julianne Moore is like, she's such a revelation in this film. And again, that is speaking of on a personal side, like that was, she was, her performance in this was so igniting to me and, and I just, I, I loved it. It was so real. It was so human. It was so soft, but also so forceful, you know, she was such a force in the film. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, it, going back to your point, like I I thought that that's what was, it was so, it was, I agree with you. Like, like, like videotape was the villain, as opposed to all these other things that we could easily um, discriminate for. You know? Right. And and it wasn't that. It was the change from film to videotape. And and I think again, Burt Reynolds, like in one of his, the most amazing. I, I just love him in this <laughs> film, and as Jack Horner, who's like this auteur, You know, mm-hmm. he has to pivot. And he has to learn, and he and he stumbles through it. And I thought that that was just from like a filmmaking perspective because that was a thing too. In 1997, we're still shooting on film, right? Like film, yeah. shooting on films. So HD
0: looked terrible. And it's 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 willingness to empathize with all of these characters who are at the end of their viability but don't all know it. Yeah. Is just so. It's so. It's the thi- It's it's weird. It's a thing that Anderson kind of stops doing after Magnolia. Um, maybe Punch Drunk Love. Punch Drunk Love is yeah. all about identifying yeah. with with Barry, but he starts creeping off into this colder mode. Yeah. As, as a director, and I don't think it's a bad thing. I, I mean, he's very very good at what he's doing, and he wants to pursue it. But I don't. I also don't think that his later films have the same visceral impact. There Will Be Blood does. That's sort of the the part where he he starts. I'm, I'm actually arguing yeah. against myself.
1: Uh, no, no, no. I, I feel you though. I understand what you're saying. And yeah, and there has been like a, a marked transition. You know, and yeah. again, um not necessarily not necessarily for worse. It's just different. And and I, I also appreciate that about him that there has been this evolution. But I equally I equally appreciate that some of the earlier stuff, which are these true ensemble pieces where he's reusing the same troupe of mm-hmm. actors so frequently. You know, he's, he's, he's recycling a lot of the same concepts. And to me, they were just sort of like becoming bigger and better and more coalesced and it like, and that's the thing, Magnolia is another one that I know you've had conversations about before but I love Magnolia Magnolia as a film was just like mind-bending to me too it was just so it was so I had so much feeling watching that film and so much feeling every time I've watched it since you know um and and uh I think I do really appreciate a film that feels like Well, you're you're in a you're in a world that that maybe we don't know about or maybe we have judgments about or maybe, you know, maybe we have preconceived notions. And then, you know, you're watching these really human stories like like the the porn in the film is not sensationalized at all. Sure. The porn in the film is very normalized. You are. We're also seeing all the human elements that each person is facing as you as you are talking as you're speaking of, that like these people are at the precipice of either either the end of their time or a transition into something else. You know, you sure. have Amber Waves who goes on to be a director, and you have Buck Swope who goes on to owning his his um, stereo store.
0: Yeah, he's an entrepreneur. <laughs> I mean, they all are, right? They're all.
1: Yeah, and um, and and you know, you have um, Reed Rothschild, who's a magician, who does his and he blends the worlds, you know, yeah. between magic and um, <laughs> titillation, and um, so it is I just yeah, I just I don't know, I I I just felt like I was I was so engaged from like the beginning of that film from like the opening of you know like the neon like all the neon all the neon lights and that whole start and then that beautiful tracking shot through the nightclub and yeah. um and having uh like the so, um what's the song it, um uh best of best of my love right
0: oh yes yeah
1: the emotions the, it's like it's so fun the energy is so high and and i just i felt like again as far as openings go. And I know that that was like an homage to Goodfellas. And, and I know that like, that's where it was coming from, but, but still it it was, it was done with such, with such energy and such lightness and, and such particular, like every character, like I felt like I was like every character was not squandered in that opening. You know, like we knew what we were going to get And we knew that we were going to see all those characters. And I felt like he did a really fair job of showcasing everyone.
0: Yeah. And that's, that's what I mean about the, the the idea that he loves everyone that he's, he's introducing us to them with enthusiasm. He's not hanging clouds over people's heads or showing them in the middle of doing things they shouldn't be doing or that, that might push us against their character. It just draws us in. It's like, what is this person doing and why, and who are they? And will we see them again? Yeah. And his ability to cast, I mean, This is what um, I I held it up at the very beginning of the recording. I'm just letting my listeners know Uh, the cover for Boogie Nights is this great sort of artificial hand-drawn poster Mm -hmm. look. And the incredible thing to me about that poster is that if you look very closely at it, the only people who vaguely look like themselves are Burt Reynolds, maybe William H. Macy and Wahlberg. Yeah. And that just tells me, to remember that in 1997, most of these people were new to audiences. I'd seen them in independent films and and they'd been around. Julianne Moore had made Safe and Vanya and Shortcuts and uh, Don Cheadle was in, I guess, Devil in the Blue Dress was the one that really popped him a couple of years earlier. But they were all working actors. Yeah. But Anderson's ability to cast each of these people and then surround Mark Wahlberg with them, because he's not the strongest actor and he's very well suited to this role. Oh, my they, God. They all play this It's a genuine supporting cast. Everybody has, you get the sense that like, it's the old theater joke, right? If someone leaves a room, they're probably in a different movie. We just don't get to see it. There's a sense that there's a life for everybody involved, but the work that's going on, the way Riley is just so quietly funny in a way that he hadn't been before. It just, it speaks to everybody's future in the movie, not their characters necessarily, but every single one of these people is someone you're going to follow for the rest of their career.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, even like, you know, Thomas Jane is not Mm -hmm. listed front credits um Nicole Ari Parker who I think is glorious and she's so good in the movie same thing you know um Melora Walters yeah, yeah also like who then who then goes on to many other things but Magnolia and like blows it out of the water you know it's like he I agree with you his ability to cast is so top-notch and spot-on and Mark Wahlberg to me that is like an, an undeniably fantastic performance. Like that is, I, I just think like he, he goes so perfectly and seamlessly from this like wide eyed teen into like the all is lost Dirk Diggler that he yeah. becomes, you know, and, and I believe every moment, I believe every single moment, he was so plugged in and so connected and it was such a joy to watch I, I felt like I felt like a real triumph watching him because I think that, that I I think that you know he hadn't necessarily had a showcase like that before, um, certainly not the depth of the content of the film, you know, uh, and and he nailed it. I yeah. I I really like I've followed every single thing that he was saying and doing, you know. Yeah. And, um. And yeah, I mean like everybody, everybody is just there's so much there's there's such a every single person I felt um hit the tone of of levity and pathos. Like everyone, Heather Graham is so heartbreaking oh, yeah. as Roller Girl. Like um you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman is is is, is j- uh, just a revelation as Scotty, <laughs> like Alfred Molina. I mean, yeah. I, I just was, uh, I mean, I used to be able to quote the film. I can't anymore, but I used to be able to quote it. And uh, and I feel like, you know, again, my older brother and all his friends, like it was a movie that we often circled back on and, and spoke about. I think music plays a big part in film. I really think that, and and I think in terms of, of this film, like the soundtrack, not let alone the score, because I think the score was really.
0: Oh yeah. That, that poignant. incredible, that that dying carousel music that Michael Penn uses that tells yes. you the party's ending before the party yes. ends.
1: Yes. And, and, you know, and, and that's the thing. Yes, exactly. And, and so like the use of score and the use of soundtrack in this film was just really, um, Memorable and re- and also just really takes you on a ride.
0: Yeah, it's you know? um, it's. I had seen Hard Eight and been sort of underwhelmed, I guess, just yeah. because it yeah. felt. I don't know why it felt airless. I've never really connected to it. It just yeah. felt like it was content with its premise and didn't. And and then now I understand. He just wanted to focus on the performances and really what was happening in terms of the plot was just an excuse to get to the next scene. Yes. yes. And so I can watch it now and think, oh, I see what he's doing. That just didn't yeah. click for me. I feel that way about the second half of The Master, where you know the movie says everything it has to say right up until Freddy leaves on the motorcycle. And then sure, yeah. we're still going for another hour. But I get it. He's exploring the characters. But with with Boogie Nights, there is an energy and a, a, a pacing, a musical pacing that he brings to it through the soundtrack that doesn't happen very often in his films. It happens again in Magnolia, but I think those are the only two.
1: Yeah, I think so too. And, and, and I think like, that's, I guess, to my point for me subjectively, like, I think those are, those are my two favorite films of his. And I think that's a big reason why, because I feel it, it just, it does sort of like move you on this kind of like other level, this other layer that adds to it, you know, and like the set, the sound and the, and the music and like everything added on to what's already going on with these characters and, and the performances um it's just so like i i i felt like you know i i felt like i was in a speedball the whole time yeah <laughs> just sort of like there was so much going on i had so much feeling of of what was going on and the other thing too even in going back to heart eight for a second i agree with you like it's not it's it's not my favorite by any means the performances are all there absolutely the cast is there the performances are there um but but i i felt like it was a little bit you know stagey though that said i really forgive that because it's like that was his first feature sure and and so that's the thing like i i forgive that that i understood what the plot was that he what he wanted to tell and again you know philip baker hall is again someone that i just inherently feel for you know, like I inherently feel for Philip Baker Hall. I just think he's like, he's, um, he's a sympathetic actor, you know, sympathetic, relatable actor. But what I was going to say is that even in Hard Eight, which to me was not my favorite of his, I still really appreciated like the rhythm and the cadence of his dialogue. Like there's something about his dialogue that to me you would think it might feel too stagey. You would think it might feel too cumbersome or specific, but for some reason it works. And, and that was, I found myself with heartache going like, I actually think, I actually think it was like, like the, the, the dialogue of the film didn't bother me. It was the rhythm of like the actual scenes that, mm. that, that bothered me, but I don't know if that makes sense. I guess it's, that's kind of a, it's kind of like a, a you know, a half cooked idea, but no, I no, I,
0: It's, it's pacing versus flow. I totally get that. There's, uh, there's the naturalistic pacing of dialogue and then there's what's happening in, in the film to guide you.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, but I, but I, I can, I, I hear his dialogue, I guess is what I'm saying. And you can hear it in Boogie Nights as well but again it 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 doesn't bo- it doesn't bother me at all like oftentimes if i'm watching a film and i can hear the dialogue i kind of tune out cuz i'm like oh okay this is just like it was great on the page but oh, it I doesn't see. really work coming out of a human you know it I mean? like coming out of like a, a human voice 3d person but in this case like i i just really appreciate his his and again as i mentioned i could in the past quote the film <laughs> <laughs> it was and, and i could give you an example but it, it but it is something that I, that I notice, especially I did notice it in heart eight. I certainly notice it in Boogie Nights and I notice it in Magnolia too. And I just, and, and beyond, I mean, it's almost like he, he writes with, you know, there is kind of, there is a rhythm. It's almost like poetry, but it doesn't, it doesn't feel that way when you receive it as an audience, or at least for me, it didn't. Yeah. Well,
0: Boogie Nights feels like the movie where he found himself or at least the movie where he was able to do exactly what he wanted, even though there were compromises, he originally wanted to make it three hours long and NC 17 and new line said, you can have an R rating or bring it in under three hours and probably will still have an R rating. And the amazing thing is I I discovered this a little while ago. He fought the R rating thing harder than almost anything else because he was convinced that this wouldn't have a market that audiences wouldn't care. It was going to be a niche picture, no matter what he did and the influence that it's had and the way that it resonates throughout the independent film culture for, you know, 15 years, I think there's echoes of Boogie Nights and all sorts of things. I love the idea that he didn't see that, that this whole film is about prescience and knowing what's going to happen and being ahead of the characters. We don't know exactly what's going to happen to them, but we know that the industry they're working in isn't going to be the same by the time we're watching the movie. Um right. And that he just had this amazing blind spot of his own, I think is just wonderful because he sees everything except that.
1: Yeah, no, that's a good, that's a good point. That's a very good point. Yeah, it's um, I mean, it's it's funny, isn't it? It's like like art is so subjective in general, but in this case, like it it is, it is like he he has an objective point of view on it, but he's not objectifying it. <laughs> Yeah. It's saying like, it's, it's really, I don't know. I don't know. That's so, that's so funny. And I do, I do find it really interesting that it, not long after this film came out was, was the change in the film industry too. And, and again, the porn of the seventies was, was like, I, I, I imagine, or at least it's suggesting that it, it was as mainstream. It just had different content that you were showing on screen yeah, I mean, in it a, was
0: in movie theaters, right? I mean, you movie could movie actually, theaters. and yeah. there were legitimate crossovers. I mean, certainly the, I've seen enough documentaries to know that the stuff he's yeah. referencing is is painfully real, is is exacting yeah. as possible. There was a, I think it was the Criterion Laser just that came with a John Holmes documentary that has yeah. scenes that he just cheerfully replicates for Dirk and and uh, and Reed in the course of Boogie Nights. Um, this the first scene we see with Amber is a scene that John Holmes played. And it's just, it's almost line for line. It's definitely shot for shot. It's jarring to see it.
1: I'd actually really like to see that documentary. I had heard about that and I haven't, I haven't checked it out, but it would be interesting, especially after talking about Boogie Nights to kind of go back.
0: Yeah. No, he's steeped in this stuff. I mean, it's, it, it's, I get the early comparisons of, of, uh, of Boogie Nights to Pulp Fiction, right? Because of a big ensemble cast and a stylized approach in the sense that the director is recreating a mode that he absolutely knows inside and out and loves very much. Yeah. But I never understood the larger comparison because Tarantino is, uh, he's, he's like a cultural magpie. He's taking pieces from the movies that he likes and making new movies out of them. Whereas Anderson is creating a whole world yeah. and then it just it's as immersive. Like we're getting the same sense of texture and the, and the love of interaction and the strange things that happen inside of it. But I think like, I honestly think the Jesse's girl sequence with Molina is better than a Tarantino sequence for that thing. Like he gives you this. Yeah. And again, to, to, to go back to Mark Wahlberg being so much better in this than he could have been um, the scene where Dirk goes dead and just sort yeah. of, and we are stuck there with him in this moment.
1: You, you, like the 45 second stare. Or
0: yeah. What,
1: like where he's just locked in. Yeah. Yeah. Where, where
0: there's horror. And then he yeah. slowly realizes that, you know what, if I am going to die, this is, Fun that weird little electricity of him. You could feel the hair on other people's arms going up in the theater. That was never experienced a moment like that.
1: Well, it was again, that scene. I mean, that scene was so seminal. And I don't know, maybe you would know Norm, if like, was that a reference to anything else?
0: Not that I'm aware.
1: Okay. So yeah, I, I wasn't, I thought that that was like his own. And again, if that is like mastery, because there's so much texture in that scene. There's so much going on. It is, it is impossible to extricate yourself from that environment. It feels like it's happening to you. Like the firecrackers going off the music being yeah. like, like five decibels too loud, you know, like, um, the awkwardness of of Molina's costume like everything yeah. it, you know the his bodyguard standing vigil like there's so much tension and yes. there's there's so much tension there's so much chaos and then so especially in that moment that you're speaking of like when you find that kind of pause and that kind of like stillness and then the kind of like transition from like one thing to another it is a roller coaster like it is like everything is coming up don't know what it's going to look like <laughs> like yeah. everything's coming up yeah and um and uh, that scene was was for sure like to me a standout and you know i also loved amber and roller girl in their in their uh oh, the drug mat. the drug yeah. haze yeah i you
0: the were saying mat. you used to quote the dialogue the only line that i ever want to quote is will you be my mom but it just makes me so sad
1: <laughs> i know it's 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 like crushing it's soul crushing. Um, but it was done beautifully. And, and, and again, it's done with that perfect balance of tone that. I like, it just feels, it feels like everyone was in on the secret. You know what I mean? Like everyone. And again, whether that's casting, whether that's Paul Thomas Anderson uh his direction whether that is just innately every single one of those actors you know adherence to to the tone of the film it's just it's to me it's so pitch perfect that that each each actor in each scene kind of finds that balance between yeah. um humor and heartache
0: yeah it, what's incredible to me is the way that he replicates the sort of generic nature of pornographic structure um which is what we see with Amber performing in her scene we see her like we see Julian Moore suddenly become less interesting which is yeah. incredible i've never seen her do that before or since yeah but but he pulls on this other string too which is that if you describe the events of boogie nights it sounds like a police blotter it doesn't sound sympathetic or engaging if you just relate the plot it's this idiot does this this bad person does this you like you can step back and and reduce it all to cliche. And the same thing that Tarantino does, really. He takes crime movies and puts real people in them to inflate the, the humanity of it. And the, the thing about Boogie Nights is that by the end of it, and it works for that the scene with Molina with the with the 45-second stare, is that it makes an emotional impact because by the time it's happening, we get to know, like we know who these people are. And it's that whole thing where it's like he created the darker version of that, it's funnier if you were there joke where, you know, we're suffering along with them and it, and it is excruciating to watch these people in bad situations because we know how good they are. We know how well-meaning they are and how they don't want to hurt each other and how they are operating as a family. And it isn't until they all accept that on their own terms that they can have light in their lives again, which is another beautiful thing that it's also, you know, like Magnolia hits the same note, but it hits it. They both hit this so exquisitely in this, this, thing about compassion and empathy that's running through these early films of his that I feel like a loss in the colder movies that have come um, since
1: yeah and 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 I agree I think I I mean it is I I feel like that's that's it's it makes his film so relatable even if we don't relate to the setting or the environment it's like the the people are so relatable like you know William H Macy what his what what he's going through, what little Bill is going through in that film that culminates in, you know, the countdown at New Year's Eve yeah. when everything changes from the 70s to the 80s. It's like, it's just, it is, it is a very good construct. And, but beyond that, it's, it, it, it really, like, again, you have somebody that's sort of, you know, a, a crew member on the sidelines that you are so taken with and so engaged with and feeling so much for. And though he made the choice that he made, it's like he got his own personal victory. Yeah.
0: On his, on his terms anyway. On his
1: terms. And, and yeah, it just, I just, I, I don't know. I I feel like, I feel like that's a film that shaped a a different way that I, I looked at cinema maybe. Or what could be.
0: And those are the best ones because they're the ones that stay with you, right? I mean, uh, Jonathan Levine and I were discussing Billy Madison the other no day. Way. And that's that's his version. It's the film that showed him that you can do comedy in a completely different structure, mode. You you can embrace this horrible, unpleasant funniness, yeah, and, and still make movies. And he's he's doing okay. Um yeah, <laughs> yeah, but to that end, I guess the way out of the podcast is also always the same, which is, uh, is there anything of, of Boogie Nights that you've lifted or borrowed or referenced or stolen outright in your own work?
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, that's interesting. Um...
0: I mean, there's some parent stuff going on in Demonic, but I don't yeah. really see the same yeah. relationships. <laughs>
1: Yeah. But there is, I mean, there is, there is that sense of searching for your mother, you know, there is that sense sense of, of finding connection and finding familial place. So, so there, there is that, I mean, I wouldn't say that I directly was, um, you know, uh, I was directly channeling roller girl in my performance in demonic, but, uh, but I, I definitely do feel like um, if if anything that I've taken from boogie nights, it is that sense of like finding the human element in every story. It is that sense of trying to like like connect and plug into something that's relatable, and and hopefully take an audience on that journey.
0: Yeah. Well, plus, if you'd had roller skates, you would have probably gotten out of the problems a lot faster.
1: Norm, if I had roller skates, I'd probably have a broken neck and, <laughs> and not be walking. in but... <laughs> but it would be good exercise.
0: <laughs> My thanks to Carly Pope, who you can see starring in Neil Blomkamp's Demonic right now in theaters and on VOD. Thanks also to Claire Peace McConnell. She knows what she did. You can find Carly on Twitter at Pope underscore on a rope, because of course. And you can find Boogie Nights on Blu-ray and DVD from New Line Home Entertainment in a special edition that has most of the amazing supplements produced for the Criterion Collection's Laserdisc edition. It's also streaming on Netflix in the U.S. and Canada, and on Crave and Amazon Prime Video Stars channel in Canada as well. It's also available to rent or buy on most VOD platforms. As always, you can find me on Twitter, at Norm Wilner, and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com, where I'm hosting a bunch of podcasts these days and writing the weekly Now streaming letter, which will be relaunching around Labor Day weekend in a cool new format. I'll tell you where to find it. And you can find this podcast on Twitter, at SEMcast, S-E-Mcast, and on the web, Actually, someone else's movie.com is being problematic right now. The migration to Simplecast borked the someoneelsesmovie.com site, so I'll figure it out. Anyway, check Twitter. You'll, you'll always find links there. Our theme song is by The Last Year. If you like it or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review wherever you've been enjoying us. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're there. Watch movies. Stay safe. Wear a mask if you go out. Get your shot when you can. I'll see you next time.